We're going to finish Isaiah 63 tonight and also take Isaiah 64, which shouldn't be hard. It's only 12 verses. Isaiah 64 is only 12 verses. And, and really together with the last part of chapter 63, the part that begins with verse 7, it's really one continuous thought. The chapter divisions are, are man's invention and at times are almost arbitrary. So we're going to be taking a, a, a bigger chunk, but it's one continuous idea. And that idea is a prayer of repentance. It's really a, a prayer along the lines of what we just sang, that Rivers and Robots song. It's a, it's a prayer that Israel, at the end of the tribulation, prays confessing their national sin, acknowledging that they rejected their Messiah, and pleading with Jesus to return. Which seems a little out of order if you were with us last week, or if you're familiar with, with what goes on at the beginning of chapter 63. Because verses 1 through 6, we looked at last week, at the very end, after we looked at every other book of the Bible, we read about Jesus who had returned. Isaiah 63, the first six, we see Jesus having returned, making his way from Basra, from Petra, to Jerusalem. He, Jesus returns to Basra, defeats Israel's enemies there, defeats the armies of Antichrist, and then he makes his way to Jerusalem, and we triangulated lots of places, Micah and Habakkuk and Revelation and so forth. We see Jesus dripping with blood, fighting his way to Jerusalem, laying waste to Antichrist's armies. So how is it then at the end of that same chapter, we're rewinding to the prayer of repentance that we've been saying for weeks now is the precondition to Jesus' return. For Jesus to return, he said, I'm not going to return. Uh, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You won't see me again until you acknowledge your mistake, until you confess your sin, and until you repent of rejecting your Messiah. But Jesus has already come, which means the prayer must already have been prayed. So is this just one of those times that the Holy Spirit puts things out of order? It might be, and the possibility shouldn't freak us out. It happens a lot. We've seen it happen several times in Isaiah. It's not particularly unusual for the Holy Spirit to break with a strict, linear chronology. So I think that's certainly possible. Or, here's another possibility. It might be a second occasion of prayer. We saw last week, and we talked in recent weeks, how Isaiah 53, those well-known verses, are the prayer of repentance. Whether these specific words, I suspect that they will be these words, or these ideas expressed to Jesus by a repentant remnant that calls upon his mercy, asks his forgiveness, begs his return. Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him, but we see now, we understand now, he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but 
Now we understand he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. I believe that that, that prayer or something very much like it is the prayer offered by the remnant hunkered down sheltering in Basra during the second half of the tribulation finally prayed, finally uttered, finally expressed to God at the end of the tribulation as Antichrist's armies besiege Petra, Petra Basra, two names, same place. But as we saw last week, the Jews in Basra are not the only ones who repent, right? There's also a remnant in Jerusalem. Really, by the time that the Battle of Basra has happened, a remnant of a remnant that calls upon the name of the Lord. We saw last week Antichrist's armies first defeat Jerusalem. They capture the city militarily. And half of the inhabitants are immediately carried off into slavery. But there's another half still there. And I, I suspect that that remaining remnant, that defeated, beleaguered remnant in Jerusalem likewise calls upon the name of the Lord. Likewise cries out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where do you get that, Patrick? A lot of places, most conspicuously Zechariah 12. You don't have to turn there. We've turned there together many times these past weeks. You can if you want to. I, I can't really stop you. And I don't want to. But, but Jesus says, It shall be in that day that I'll seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, 9. And I'll pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look at me whom they pierced. Yes, they'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. So it would seem that there are prayers offered, prayers expressed, and prayers answered not only from Basra, but also from Jerusalem. And I wonder if the prayers aren't the result of what we just read. God pouring out his spirit of grace and supplication upon the survivors. Does God's willingness meet their willingness? Are they moved by what happened and stirred to seek the Lord at the same time that God is pouring out his spirit to meet them? Maybe. Maybe. To be honest, I've never read anybody express this idea. So this is Patrick out on the skinny branches on a Wednesday night. I've never heard anybody play with this idea, so I'm probably missing something. The chronology of events, the logistics of Jesus' return, what happens in what order, is chewy and a subject of much disagreement. So take anything that I just said with an open hand. It's an interesting theory, I think, but that's just what it is. It's a theory. At least the part about it being prayed by a remnant in Jerusalem who's coming to Christ 
on or about the time of his return. Could be just another perspective on the prayer offered by the remnant in Basra. But whatever it is, whoever is praying, they are calling upon the name of the Lord. They're asking mercy. They're asking forgiveness. They're asking deliverance. Let's read the prayer. Isaiah 63, verse 7. I'll mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he's bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. So this prayer begins the way most of Israel's best prayers begin. It begins the way many Psalms of David begin. It begins the way the Song of Moses begins with a declaration of God's goodness, a recitation of his past mercies, his character, his loving kindness, praising God for who he is. It's how Jesus taught us to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer, the best prayer, doesn't start with us. It doesn't begin with our needs, our wants, our wishes our situation, our status, it begins with the one hearing our prayer. It begins with the one to whom we're addressing our prayer, declaring that he's able to answer, not on the basis of our, and, and he's willing to answer. God who is able, God who is willing, not because of who we are, not on the basis of our goodness, our worthiness, but always and only on the basis of his character, his faithfulness. Verse 8, for he said, God said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. That was God's hope for Israel. So he became their savior. God refused to leave Israel in Egypt. Throughout this prayer and throughout Scripture, the Exodus, God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, is a picture, it's a type of Jesus' saving work. Jesus brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He brings us out of our Egypt, out of sin. And Jesus, the Passover lamb, and, and so forth. God looked at his people Israel, his children. He loved them, and he reached out to save them. Again, a reference to the Exodus. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them, and he carried them all the days of old. While Israel suffered in Egypt... God suffered. Parents, you get that. You know that when your children hurt, you hurt. And if you can do something about it, if you can do something to stop their hurt, you do. And God could, so he did. God saw his children suffering. He felt their pain, so he did something about it. He sent the angel of his presence, elsewhere referred to as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. He sent... Jesus, to be the Savior of Israel, to deliver them from Egypt. That's not how we usually think about the Exodus, is it? But the Holy Spirit just said it, that Jesus delivered them. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, after Israel 
was brought out of Egypt, avoided the angel of death and so forth, passed through the Red Sea, verse 10, they rebelled. Israel rebelled and grieved God's Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Pause. If you collect Trinity verses, which I know is something that some of you enjoy, this is a passage that speaks of the Trinity pretty clearly. Worth going back to and, and staring at and studying. But verse 10, what did the Holy Spirit just say? He said that having been let out of Israel, they rebelled and grieved God the Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy. When did Israel rebel? When didn't they? <laughs> Golden calf, rejected Moses as leader, Moses wasn't, wasn't perfect, Moses strikes the rock, refused to, to enter into the promised land, turned away at the border. God doesn't specify which of these. I don't think that we have to specify. Could be any of them, could be all of them. The character of Israel was rebellion. We know the story, the stories. We see in, in the five books of Moses, Israel reaping what they sowed. And so the remnant of Israel here is doing what? That future remnant, that besieged remnant, that repentant remnant is confessing, we've done it again. We're, we're them. They're us. We've done it again. We've rebelled. We've gone our own way. We've forgotten God. But wait. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble, as a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Surrounded by Antichrist's armies, whether at Basra or Jerusalem, this remnant of Israel asks, God, you've done it before. Would you do it again? God, can't you part this sea? You parted the Red Sea and you drowned the Egyptian army. Can you part this sea? Can you do something about Antichrist's army? Can you lead us out again? Can you vanquish our enemy again? Can't your spirit fall upon us today like your spirit fell upon us in the wilderness? It's a reference to Numbers 11 if you want to track that down. And it's part of what gives birth to the, to the theory, to the, to the concept that I shared at the beginning. They're praying, God, would you do it again? Part of what God did in, in bringing them out was he set his Holy Spirit upon them. Is it that spirit of grace and supplication that we read about in Zechariah 12? Maybe, but let's not get distracted. Because what we just read is awesome. What we just read is Israel saying, we don't deserve it. But we didn't deserve it then. And you didn't, you didn't move mightily. You didn't do miracles. You didn't deliver us on the basis of our merit then. 
You did it, verse 13, to make for yourself an everlasting name. You did it for your glory. Would you do it again? Would you lead us out, verse 14, would you lead us out again for the glory of your name? Verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Israel is saying, you're the same God. Hector brought in a song a few weeks ago. I think, it, I think it's Elevation that, 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 um, that wrote it. I'm calling on the God of Jacob, whose love endures through generations. I know you'll keep your covenant. I'm calling on the God of Moses, the one who opened up the ocean. I need you now to do the same thing for me. Rock of ages, I'm standing on your faithfulness. God, I need you on your faithfulness. I'm standing, it never changes, it never changes, and, and, and so on. Because it's a Christian song and it repeats. But they're saying, God, you're God and you repeat. You're the same God and you don't change. Your mercies are new every morning. Your power is inexhaustible. You're the same God. And we don't deserve it now any more than we deserved it then. But your compassion is unchanging. Would you move again? Verse 16, doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O oh God, are our father. Our redeemer from everlasting is your name. I don't know what to do with that verse exactly. Is, is the intercessor here praying, Abraham had no idea how the future would play out? Israel, Jacob, couldn't conceive of, of how the story would end? Perhaps. Or, or, or is this, even more specific, is this Abraham had no idea how your people would turn from you? How Israel, even today, in the day that the intercessor is praying, rejects God. Two-thirds of Jews, even in Israel today, don't believe in God. Or believe in a God, but don't profess the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we know you, God, says the one praying. We know you. You're our Father, our Redeemer. From everlasting is your name. God's removing the scales somewhat from Israel's eyes to even be able to pray this. He's given them a conviction, an awareness of their own infirmity. Some sensitivity to the fact that their hearts had been hardened like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Again, some resonance with the Exodus and asking God, are you willing to change us? Are you willing to let us change? Can we, in your mercy, be changed? It's, it's sort of the, the, the Ezekiel 36, 16 idea. God, remove this heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, a tender heart, a soft heart, a heart given over to you. O Lord, verse 17, why have you made us stray from your ways and harden our heart from your fear? 
return for your servants' sake the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We've become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who are never called by your name. We talked about the abomination of desolation last week, the temple desecrated, people driven from the land. And the intercessor here, the one praying, is, is saying, in effect, it's like 70 AD all over again. We've been driven from the land again. We're, we're, we're helpless in the land that you've given us again. We might as well be Gentiles because there's nothing special about us. The world doesn't see us as chosen or beloved. God, if not for us, for your name, for your reputation, the way that Moses prayed, right? For your name. Don't let this be the end of the story. Can you make it not the end of the story? Chapter 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. We rushed a little bit at the end of the message last week. But, but we waved at the fact that Zechariah 14 and Habakkuk 3, Revelation 16, talks about earthquakes accompanying Jesus' return, right? Leading some to wonder, are they getting it? Are they making the connection? Are they, are they seeing what's happening around them and mapping it to prophetic scripture? Do they get that that's what they're praying for, the return of Jesus? Not just for God to deliver them, but for the Son of God that they handed over to be tortured and executed to come back down and deliver them and fight for them and save them. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe they're still reaching back to Exodus. Maybe they're reaching back to places like Exodus 19. God on Mount Sinai where the, where the earth shook. And or after their deliver, you know, after their deliverance from Egypt, they, their their first resting stop, their first parking place was at the base of Mount Sinai, and then the earth shook there with God's presence. I, I lean that way if you force me to choose. I don't know that that they've quite at this point in the prayer that they've quite sorted out that Jesus is the answer to the prayer. I don't. I don't. Maybe. But I'm not sure that they're crystal clear on what it is that they want, what exactly they're hoping for or praying for. They're saying, God, come down. But do they know that it'll be Jesus who answers that prayer? I'm not sure. Verse 2, as the fire burns brushwood, as fire calls water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. And and and. I might have made up my mind and then I'm, 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 I'm reading through that lens. But I read that and I think Elijah calling down fire from heaven. I read that and I read Exodus 9 and, and hail and fire. So I, I think the intercessors here are reaching back to, to the deliverance from Egypt, the salvation from Egypt still. I might be wrong. But verse 3 as well, when you did, past tense, awesome things for which we did not look, you came down and the mountains shook at your presence. See, that, that's not prophetic past tense. That's past tense. Earthquakes on Mount Sinai, earthquakes with Elijah, earthquakes in, in, the, in, in, the, in the Psalms of David. So I think this is God. You've shown yourself mighty in the past. 
Show yourself mighty again. And it's at this point that we can well imagine God saying, why should I? Right? And if we can imagine it, the remnant praying can certainly imagine it. Because they're waking up. They're, they're, they're wisening up to their own sinfulness. The Holy Spirit is speaking words of conviction to them. And so they know that it's, they, have no, they have no good answer to the question, why should God answer that prayer? No good answer, that is, that revolves around them. The only answer to the question, why should God hear their prayer? Why should God answer their prayer? Revolves not around them, but around him. Verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Why should you answer the prayer, God? Because you can. And because you've promised to bless those who believe. Why should you save us, Israel asks? Why should the God of creation look down and have mercy on us? Because of who you are. Still verse 5. You're indeed angry. For we have sinned. You're angry and you have every right to be. You're angry and you should be. You ain't, you're angry and you can't not be. We've sinned. In these ways we continue. We've, we have sinned. We are sinning. And we need to be saved. But we're all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there's no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you for you've hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Confession. There it is. Confession. And it's beautiful and it's horrible and it's majestic and it's tragic all at the same time. Beautiful and horrible and majestic and tragic and utterly necessary. That's what God's been waiting for. And, and if this were a Sunday, there's a whole message there in verses 5 through 7. That's a model confession, isn't it? It's unflinching. There's no mealy-mouthed words. There's no, God, if we've sinned. No, we've sinned. It's unflinching. And there's no prettying it up. Filthy rags. You, you, you know what that is pointing to. Undeservedness. It's, it's abject. God, we know we're getting what we deserve, exactly what we deserve, entirely what we deserve, but God. But God. Verse 8 doesn't show up. If you do a search, if you find an index of but God verses, verse 8 won't be on it because there's an intervening word. But now, oh Lord. But same idea. We are sinners. Period. 
paragraph, not the end of the discussion. Why? Because God. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And we are the work of your hands. Because you're God, because of your great mercy, because of your promises, because of your faithfulness, because you're you, forgive us. We can be your children again. We can be your people again. We can be clay on the wheel again. You can be our father again if you decide, if you decide you're willing to. If you decide you're willing to. It's in your hands. But we are praying from a place of believing that your mercy is enough. Would you, Father, verse 9, would you be willing do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. Would you be willing on the basis of your promise to Abraham? That's what we just read in verse 9. Verse 10, your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire, our pleasant things are laid waste. Are you willing to for the glory of your name? Verses 10 and 11, if you let things stand the way they are, the Gentiles win. The nations get the last word. Those who say that you're not there, that you don't care, that you're God who's not willing or not able or not at all, they'll think they're right. They'll think they'll vindicate it. They'll shout, they'll mock, they'll ridicule. God is dead if he was ever alive in the first place. God, if not for us, then for you. Don't let that happen. Verse 12, will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? We're in your hands, God. We've acknowledged our sin. We've We've rebelled against you. We've defied you. When you came, we rejected you. We repent. And we ask, based on everything we know about you, based on everything you have ever told us about you, will you forgive us? Will you have mercy? It's so beautiful. And it's so powerful. And it's so important to you and me. This seems like a long ways away. Oh, it's on the other side of the tribulation. We'll be long gone. We'll be watching from the mezzanine. No, Israel here is laying hold of an incredibly important, a supremely powerful truth that's as relevant to you and me as it will be for them. God does not want to be angry with anyone. He will if we give him no choice. But it's not his first choice. We saw earlier in Isaiah, judgment is God's strange work, his peculiar work. His first choice always is mercy. And so many of us, I know, struggle with that concept of a merciful God 
who doesn't want to be angry. We struggle because of our earthly fathers. We struggle because of the, the, the vivid pictures of God's wrath. We struggle perhaps because of pastors we've studied under. We've learned an angry God. But the truth about God is what Israel realizes it is, what Israel declares it to be here. God doesn't want to be angry with us. If he did, he would never have sent Jesus. God sent Jesus to bear, to receive, to, to absorb all of God's anger, his righteous anger. God doesn't repent of his anger, but he redirects it. All of the punishment, all of the justice, all of the judgment, all of the wrath, he directs it on Jesus. All of the anger he ever could have, all of the anger he would ever have for us fell on Jesus. And God isn't angry with those who call upon his name, not anymore. For those who look on Jesus and believe that he came for us and died for us, God will never be angry with us again. Isn't that, that's amazing. Israel prays, chapter 64. <clears throat> God, we believe if we confess our sin, you'll stop being mad at us. We believe if we confess our sin, you'll return to us, deliver us, protect us, restore us, revive us, renew us. Do we have that same fate? They're believing by faith. Do we, do we have that same fate knowing that Jesus returned, knowing that he, he lives in us. God, we did confess our sin. Do we believe that he's no longer mad at us? You came for us, delivered us, live in us. You delight to protect and preserve and renew and revive us. You will never be mad at us again. Our flesh says, oh, it feels like he is. I feel like God is mad at me a lot. I feel like God is mad at me tonight. Maybe you're mad at you, and you're projecting that on God. Maybe you're disappointed in you, and you're putting that on God. Or maybe you're listening to the enemy. Because one of his favorite lies is, God's mad at you. God doesn't even want to look at you. He's disgusted with you. He's ashamed of you. We got we, we, when we hear that, because we do, all of us, we got to turn around and say to Satan, liar. Because he is. How do we know it's a lie? How, how do we remember it's a lie? What did we just read? Our forgiveness isn't about us. It never was. What does Israel profess here? God, we don't deserve your love, but we can still claim your love. Not on the basis of who we are, on the basis of who you are. It was never about them. It was never about us. Satan wants to make it about us. Satan wants to make it all about us and our flesh is usually willing to join him and sing a chorus of me, 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 me. Satan wants to make it about us, our faults, our failings, our sin, our shortcomings, and it simply isn't. 
It's not about us, it's about him. And verse 9, we can say, don't be furious, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. And when we pray that, God says, I don't know what you're talking about. Because he doesn't remember. He chooses not to remember our sin. And he's not furious at all. We didn't do it. He did it. We can't change it. Because it was never about us. Israel gets it. God reveals it. They grab hold of it and they pray it right back to him. God, it's about you. Forgive us for making it anything else. It's about you. It's always been about you. And God, we want to be about you, with you, together again. Lord, we join with future Israel. If the Holy Spirit puts things out of order, we can put things out of order. We can say amen to a prayer that hasn't been prayed yet, but we see it prophetically. It will be. And you will answer. And you will glorify your name. And Lord, you have answered. Each of us individually have asked for that forgiveness. Have received your pardon. Our sins have been forgotten. And your wrath has been expressed. And your wrath is exhausted. You have nothing but love for us anymore. We rest in that tonight. We rejoice in that tonight. And we're going to cling to that for the rest of the week. Thank you, Lord, for your word.